Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Going to read verses 4 and 5, where the Apostle Paul says, My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I repeat what I said last Sunday. The need of the hour is for a return to great preaching. Now, the Reformation of the 16th century gave us a rediscovery of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. But it is often forgotten that the great Reformation also provided a rediscovery of preaching. In the Middle Ages, preaching had passed behind a cloud. It's happening again in our own time, when everything else was important. In the Middle Ages, the emphasis was upon the Eucharist. It was upon the Mass. And when it came to people thinking for themselves, the position was, let the church do your thinking for you. If you have questions, fine, but don't worry. We've got it right. So that faith became defined as assent to the teachings of the church. You didn't have to think. You just believed the church got it right. If the church said it. That was enough for you. But Martin Luther, when he rediscovered the teaching of justification by faith alone, simultaneously came up with the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer, which meant you didn't have to go through man to get to God. You go directly to God through Christ without the need of a human priest to tell you this or that or to forgive your sins. And the result was that people began to think for themselves. So that great preaching always enables people to think for themselves. Great preaching will never make you a slave to the preacher. Great preaching sets you free that you might think for yourself. So that it is not an exhibition of rhetoric or oratory or eloquence. It confronts one with the word. And it searches you, and you examine yourself, and you think deeply about things. Well, the question before us today is, what is great preaching? And how do you know when you've heard it? How do you know it if it exists? When does it exist? Well, I can tell you this, it's described here by the text. Paul said, my speech, my preaching, was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. In a word, great preaching is a demonstration of the Spirit. What we want to do today is try to understand what that means. 
We don't have videotapes that we can put before you and say, here's the way it was when Paul preached. None of us were there. It's our job to try to get back to the original event as best as we can so that you might know what Paul meant by these words. My speech, my preaching was in demonstration of the spirit and of power. He tells us what it isn't. He said it's not eloquence. He said, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech was not with persuasive words. There are those who think that great preaching is that. There are a lot of people who are sermon tasters and they think they know great preaching when they hear it. They look for the exact turn of phrase. They look for the perfect use of words. And there are many in the pulpit who seem to think that this is great preaching. And they strive for words. When the Apostle Paul said this to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.14, Of these things put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit. And some today try their hardest to come up with the right word. And there are those who try so hard to be eloquent. And it's an interesting irony that what some today try the hardest to achieve, the Apostle Paul tried the hardest not to achieve. So here was a man who had the natural ability. All you have to do is read 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, no literature in the face of the earth can match that. Paul said in chapter 1, verse 17, Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. Or as he put it in chapter 2, verse 1, I came to you not with excellency of speech or of wisdom. And so here it is. What is needed is Paul's own description of the way it was, not with enticing words, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Now, Paul is not rejecting the use of words. Now, that's obvious because he says in verse 4, my speech, and that's really just uh, the authorized version translation of, of logos, my word. So he's not rejecting the use of words that you communicate through words. And he's not rejecting the idea of being persuasive. For after all, anybody who's converted has been persuaded, has been persuaded by the Spirit. But the point is, Paul is arguing against self-reliance. That is, trusting the use for the right word for the right effect. He says, no, we won't have that. And so he's arguing against letting the form or style be what determines the effect. Appealing to the intellectual, appealing uh, to that which may satisfy brilliant minds. Paul says, no, we will have nothing of that. 
Well then, what is this demonstration of the Spirit? First, it was a secret demonstration. How do we know that? For four reasons. First, the Spirit is invisible. It's like the wind. You can't see the wind. You can only see the effect of the wind. You can see trees blowing. You can feel the effect. Jesus said to Nicodemus, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. It is said of God in John 1.18, No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. And Jesus said in John 4.24, God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So the spirit is invisible. Therefore, it is a secret demonstration. It is secret also because it is internal. It is what is going on inside one's mind. You see, you can't tell what's going on in one's heart. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says, The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. But you don't know who is being affected like this. It is internal. I do not know for sure who is being affected when I preach. I remember preaching in Headington in Oxford some years ago, right after we came to England. And there was this very distinguished looking man. As I preached, his face just beamed. And I thought, this is great. He must think I'm really terrific. And I, it was one of those churches you go back to the door when you, people leave. I missed that because you get feedback because you don't always want the feedback and I wasn't particularly pleased with the feedback I got from this man I thought he was going to say what a marvelous sermon and his comment was thank you for using the authorized version and that's all it meant to him didn't hear a word I said I used the authorized version and he liked that but you can't always tell what's going on Jim Kennedy told me this story he was in the home of Dr. Mrs. Freeman Springer. Dr. Springer was our dentist, so we knew him as well. I found he collaborated the story. Jim said he was there with his wife, Ann Kennedy, witnessing to them and presented the gospel to them. And Dr. Mrs. Springer received every word politely. Would you like to receive this gift? Certainly would. They bowed their heads, they prayed. No emotion, no demonstration as far as anybody could see. And they shook hands politely and went out the door. And as Jim started up his car, he said to his wife, we'll, see, we'll never see them again. Those are his exact words, we'll never see them again. But Freeman Springer tells the next morning when he got up out of bed, he opened the blinds, the light came in, he realized he'd been born again. He was back at church on Sunday. The man had been converted. He became a trainer in evangelism explosion. When I talked to him last, he'd led 75 people to the Lord. You can't always tell. 
It's internal. It's a secret demonstration also because it is independent. The Holy Spirit works on his own, but uses the word of the preacher. But he doesn't let the preacher know who is being dealt with. So that there is no manipulation on the speaker's part when there is great preaching. So the preacher, if he's in the spirit, won't be trying to get at anybody. Now, all of us in the ministry have been tempted to do that, and I've done it. And there'll be those in the congregation, you think, I hope so-and-so's listening right now. And as you're preaching, you, you, you get kind of emotionally involved, and you just want to drive it home. I've become convinced that when one does that, and I have done it, that the Spirit just backs off. I go, I go ahead and say it. There's no power there. There's no power there. Because that's when the minister tries to manipulate the Spirit. He's independent. He won't let you do that. Great preaching is when the preacher preaches the Word and the Spirit takes over. He doesn't tap the preacher on the shoulder and says, I'm dealing with that person down on the eighth row, third from the end. No, one never knows. You cannot dictate the Spirit who he should work on. He works independently. One just casts his bread upon the water. But it's a demonstration of the Spirit because it is inscrutable. You see, who can explain the timing of God's working? Who can explain why he works when he does? Who can explain how a person is brought in by his inscrutable providence to hear a certain word and with that particular person's background and circumstances so that the person just happened to be there and the minister just happened to say that and it was a word worth gold and the person would walk a thousand miles to have heard that. Preacher couldn't have known. It's a secret demonstration because it is inscrutable. As Paul exclaimed in Romans 11:33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Who hath known the mind of the Lord or hath been his counselor? But secondly... It is a sovereign demonstration. At the bottom of the demonstration of the Spirit and power is the sovereignty of God. Now, this may be new to you. I hope not. But do you know what I mean by the sovereignty of God? It is when all things coalesce, the right person is there, the timing is perfect, the place, the circumstances. Who can predict when something will happen? Yesterday morning, it was very interesting. Came in from Pilot Lies. I didn't have a great morning. I gave away a few tracks, very few conversations. People wouldn't stop. It was beginning to get rainy. When it's like that, people walk faster and you can't stop them and talk and can't blame them. And uh, I'd come in and had two or three names to write on the board. We're going to pray for this man, that man. And we all come in and write names on the board. We have prayer for them. 
But the, the deal is, I say, if anybody prayed to receive Christ, write their name on the board and put a star by their name. Well, there were names going up, but no one had a star beside their name. And I said, well, everybody had a day like I did. It just wasn't a great morning, was it? And I said, you know, I'm surprised because when we have bad weather, God always rewards us. We have our best days when it's bad weather. It, it, it's a fact. And I thought it was all over. And then here came in one. Derek walked in and, and he wrote a name on the board. And we all looked and put a star beside the name. I said, Derek, tell us what happened. And he stood there. He was almost trembling. He said it was quite extraordinary. He said, the woman came up to me who had been given a tract earlier by somebody. And she came to me, and I began to witness to her and gave her the gospel. She was ready to receive it. I prayed with her. And after praying with her, she said, you know something? I have left home. I've left my husband. I've left my family. She says, I'm going home now. The timing. It was exactly perfect. You can't plan things like that. But you see, behind a sovereign demonstration of the Spirit, there are certain truths. There are two, to be exact, that I bring before you. The first is, God has a people whom he foreknew. Chosen from the foundation of the world. There's a word for it. It's called God's elect. We didn't elect God. He elected us. We chose him, but it's because he first loved us. Elect from the foundation of the world. And God's elect are of two sorts. First, there are those who have been converted. Secondly, are those who have not yet been converted. Those who have been converted are saved because they have believed. But there are those who haven't yet been converted. The writer of Hebrews talked about angels, ministering spirits, sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. And in Acts 18 verse 9, we read, Then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision, Be not afraid, but speak, and hold not thy peace, for I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. They weren't yet converted, but God said, I have much people in this city. And so, it's called God's elect. Now, there are those who preach on this every time they preach, and it's all they ever see in the Bible. And they abuse it, and some push it too far. But Spurgeon was a great Calvinist, and he once prayed, and I can imagine how this went down with some people. He said, Lord, bring in all thine elect, and then elect some more. One young man came up to Mr. Spurgeon, who had been urging evangelism and reaching the lost, and said, Mr. Spurgeon, what if we convert one of the non-elect? And Spurgeon patted him on the shoulder and says, God will forgive you for that. But the second thing that I bring before you, the second truth is, 
that God's elect will be converted by the preaching of the cross. Paul would preach the same message to everybody. Many are called, said Jesus, but only the elect would embrace the cross. Few are chosen. Paul, therefore, would not resort to carnal means in order to persuade God's elect. The Spirit would do it sovereignly. This is why great preaching is not with enticing words of man's wisdom. It is only by the hearing of the gospel. And so it is a sovereign demonstration. Third, it is a simultaneous demonstration. Two things happening at the same time. Something is happening to the preacher, and something is happening to the hearer. Did you ever realize what happened on the day of Pentecost? I pointed that out last week. When Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, a Greek word is used. You wouldn't know it in any English translation. It just comes out, Peter said. But it's the verb form of the same word used when it says, they spake with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And they had to have the Spirit to do that. But on the day of Pentecost, Peter had to have the same ability to speak in his own language, and that was the word that was used. But that's not all that you should know about that. As Calvin has pointed out, on the day of Pentecost, it was a miracle of hearing. Because there were many nationalities present. It was on the day of Pentecost. Dozens of foreigners were there. Peter preached in his own language but the miracle of hearing, by the time the voice was heard, they heard it in their own language. It was a simultaneous demonstration. But you see, it needs to happen even when you understand the language. Because those who understood Peter preaching in Aramaic, which I suppose it was, if they understood Aramaic, would still need the miracle of hearing. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And so it is a simultaneous demonstration. Something is happening to the preacher. Something is happening to the hearer. With the preacher, it is called authority. With the hearer, it is called acceptance. It is said of Jesus... When he finished the Sermon on the Mount, he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. I pointed out last week that the preacher may not always be aware that it's happening to him. Jesus felt deserted on the cross, even though he was performing the greatest thing ever done in the history of the world. And the minister may not always be conscious 
that he is being used. But in the case of the minister, I can only believe it is because he could get overconfident and be lifted up with pride. If I've had a good day's preaching, or I think I have, I can almost predict the next week or two I'll fall flat on my face because as surely as I had two or three great weeks in a row, I'd think, well, I've learned how now. I've got it. I know what to do. And God says, "Mm mm-mm. And he has a way of withholding the conscious anointing from me. And I've always believed that this is why in James chapter 5, when those require the anointing of the oil, which we do on Saturday, sorry, Sunday evenings, the 515 prayer meeting, we let those who have any sickness, illness, let it be known and we pray for them. But it says, call for the elders, plural. Let them pray, two or more. Why? If it was only one and there was healing, that one would say, well, I did the praying. But if it's two or more praying and there's healing, no one knows for sure who prayed. We're all human. We're all vulnerable to the temptation of pride. And God knows that. For that reason, the preacher may not always be aware he's God's instrument, and sometimes very powerfully. But fourth, what was this demonstration of the Spirit? It was a supernatural demonstration. That means it was above nature. It defied a natural explanation. If I'm not mistaken, I see Carl Henry in the congregation. Is that you, Carl? Man, I'm glad I didn't know that was you, but it's too late now. I'm going to have to finish. Carl Henry, one of the greatest theologians in the world. And I just happen to see him hidden behind there. God bless you, brother. What is a supernatural demonstration? Well, I think it is this. They saw the effect of what the Spirit did, like the wind. Uh, It was like when you see the wind blowing. You don't really see the wind, but the trees are blowing. And if it's a hurricane, the trees are bending. Well, now, what happened actually? Some think that this demonstration of the Spirit was a display of miracles. Some think that there was healing taking place. Some believe they were casting out devils. Well, there's no way to prove one way or the other whether that happened. It may have. But I think we might get a little closer to the truth if we just look at the pattern of great revivals in church history. Uh, When something unusual takes place, and when it happens, take under the preaching of George Whitfield. It is not always universally accepted. I couldn't help but think, as I was praying this morning, that we might have a demonstration of the Spirit. And I caught myself, I already said it, I said, Lord, if you would do it, we'd be so grateful. I wonder how many would be grateful. Because I have a fear that many of us who are praying for revival won't like what we see. We'd like for it to come in a 
way where we're like when I'm praying, uh, sometimes Louise uh, sort of makes fun of me. When I pray, I like to put my feet up and have a little cup of coffee next to me, all comfortable, saying, Oh, Lord, bless me. You know, I'm just feeling so good. And um, I think we're like that as a church. We want God just to come and make us feel comfortable. Well, George Whitfield, when he preached, something happened. Oftentimes, people were struck flat on the ground, unconscious. People shook. Some barked like dogs. That's right. John Wesley, when he heard about it, was appalled and said to Whitfield, you ought to stop that. Whitfield says, if you try to stop it, you'll quench the spirit. You just have to let it go. You see, we don't like anything like that. One July afternoon in 1941, in Enfield, Connecticut, Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon. He took his text from Deuteronomy. Their feet shall slide in due time. When it went to the printer, they published it under the title, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But eyewitnesses said that when Edwards finished preaching that sermon, there were men literally holding on to the pews to keep from sliding into hell. That strong men outside during the day were literally holding to the trunks of the trees to keep from sliding into hell. This has become known as the Great Awakening. Less known is what historians call America's Second Great Awakening. And this is because probably there were no great names connected with the Cane Ridge Revival. In 1799, the camp meeting phenomenon started. Nine miles north of the Kentucky-Tennessee border on Red River in an area called Cane Ridge. People came in their covered wagons from Indiana, Ohio, North Carolina, Kentucky, Tennessee. Five states. And there were several thousand there and they would meet for prayer and Bible study. They all had such a good time, they said, we'll do it again next year. In the year 1800, I read an eyewitness account. It's available at the British Museum. I read it about eight years ago. I hadn't seen it till then. Where one Sunday morning, a man whose name is not known stood on the top of a fallen tree, took his text, We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. When he finished preaching, they reckon 10,000 people were gathered around him. There were 500 prostrate on the ground, unconscious, and from Sunday morning until Wednesday afternoon, there was no period of time when there weren't at least 500 unconscious, but it would last for maybe one hour, sometimes up to ten hours. They thought they were dead. They checked their pulse, and if you can believe it, they said their pulse was like two beats a minute, 
and they thought they were dead, but they learned to leave them alone because eventually they would come out of it having great assurance of salvation. You remember Paul said, Knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God, for our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also and in power, in the Holy Ghost, in much assurance. And every single one of those persons who had been laid unconscious came out of it with great assurance. There was another place in Kentucky during the same time, or later in, in the early 19th century, where preachers, many of them unlearned, would see a demonstration of the Spirit, and the Spirit would come, and there would be those who would jerk. It is generally acknowledged now by godly people that those who jerked were those who were resisting the Spirit. Those who barked were those who were resisting the Spirit. Those who welcomed the Spirit did not have that strange kind of behavior. One story told of a woman who had very long hair. And as the preacher preached, her head shook back and forth. And they said the hair went back and forth and literally whipped like the sound of a cracking whip. All of that is very scary and may give you an odd feeling. This is why I say... What we pray for, which, by the way, this is something you can't work up. There's nothing we can do about it. Now, there were those who later, when the revival left, tried to work it up and make everybody believe it was still around. That did happen. But only a fool would try to mimic that. But I believe we can say that it was a supernatural demonstration and it is not unlikely that what I've just described was what Paul meant when he said, My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. For the result is that these people were converted. And they were converted in such a way that they could never forget how they were converted and how real it was. You see, when you read the sermons of people like this, remember when I first read a sermon of Whitfield, I read it through twice to make sure I hadn't missed anything because I thought, there's nothing here. There's nothing here. I knew a man from Singapore who himself had been converted under John Sung, S-U-N-G, the great Chinese preacher who, back in the 40s, was marvelously used in China and in the Orient. The best explanation for the church in China today, I'm told, is John Sung. Anyway, this particular man from Singapore used to talk to me about John Sung. I said, well, have you got any of his sermons? He says, yes, I've got some. And he sent me a book with his sermons. I thought, this is nothing. There's nothing here. What is this? It was so utterly simple. But you see, Paul is describing something here 
But I suspect, generally speaking, this generation has not seen, and I'm not unsympathetic with the charismatic movement. I've never been anti-charismatic, but I don't believe that's it. This is why I say what we long for is that which is supernatural, not something that is worked up, but where the Spirit comes down. The Greek word translated demonstration is a word that means where there is rigid proof. Rhetoric couldn't do this. Science couldn't do it. The Spirit did. It was invisible yet obvious, so clear to those who were converted that tangible, empirical proof would be redundant. And anybody coming along to argue with them, they would be wasting their time. Or if you laughed at them, it didn't bother them. Because they knew. They knew what God had done. Why does a person become a Christian? He can't explain it. He's willing to look ridiculous. He doesn't mind being misunderstood. He's convinced. He that believeth has the witness in himself. A few weeks ago, Hurricane Hugo went through South Carolina. No use telling residents of South Carolina that Hugo did not exist. It may have disappeared now. There's no Hugo in the world today. But it came through, and they knew. Well, the fifth thing, then, about this demonstration, it was a sustained demonstration. Notice how Paul puts it. That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So what did Paul's preaching leave them with? Faith. Hurricane Hugo left millions of dollars of damage. What was the residue of Paul's preaching? That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The proof of great preaching is what people are left with after the preaching is over. It was a sustained demonstration. No doubt, when great revival comes, there is a lot of false professions. There are a lot of false professions. They've always been. But one thing is certain. There are many who are converted that after the tide goes back out, who stay. And Paul is addressing these. You see, preaching with enticing words results in trusting in man's wisdom, where aesthetics become the thing that is sought. Philosophy, ethics, snobbery. But preaching under the anointing means trusting in the power of God. So that these people who were converted had a robust faith in God. Residents of South Carolina now have a healthy respect for nature. They can see what can happen. But these people that had been converted under Paul's preaching could never forget how real God was. That conviction of sin. 
how they were staggered, how they were brought to the flames of hell, and how they were gloriously forgiven. They can never forget that. God might hide his face from them, yes, but they could never forget that God had met them and they had met God. The proof of great preaching is when men are convinced of the reality and power of God himself. Forget the preacher. These people were enthralled with God. And nothing can shake them that way. They, they, they are not tied to the preacher. They're not dependent upon a man. Back in my hometown of Ashton, Kentucky, there was this man who... Every time a certain preacher came to town, he'd get saved. He'd go hear him, he'd go to the altar. By the time the preacher was out of town, he was back in the world. He was just tied to a man. But you see, great preaching leaves a residue of faith where the people are trusting God. And they experience God himself for themselves. And this is my greatest hope. It is what I long for, that each of you will for yourself experience how wonderful, how real God is. A sustained demonstration that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. May we pray. Heavenly Father, apply this word effectually that this word will be received not as the word of a man, but as from God himself. Give us a taste of this, O Lord. It may be that we will be grateful. We may also have mixed feelings. We invite you to come in this day where this is needed so desperately. Lord, look at London. Look at the church. Look at the dearth of leadership in the church today. Look at the godlessness in London. Look at the lethargy of those who are called by your name. Wilt thou not revive thy church in the midst of the years? In wrath, remember mercy. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.